Romans chapter 12. It says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, and honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Father, again, we thank you that in you, in Christ, we are complete. That we have everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness, of how to live a godly life. We have the power and the strength. Father, thank you that because of Christ's sacrifice, because it was complete, because he was able to say it is finished, that we have total assurance as we have received him, that we are forgiven, that we have been placed into the family, that our home is heaven, and we look forward to the day when we see you. And Lord, based on those truths and so many others, we ask that we would not only desire and be willing, but be able to live the supernatural Christian life. Lord, help us not to live underneath that, somehow being satisfied with mediocrity. Lord, give us wisdom, give us uh, understanding, give us the strength so that we might live this life so that we could truly please the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we know that we are complete in him and we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, again, we're going to be finishing up that passage today. Because it is Memorial Day, I want to start out with a thought on about the country. It was given by a president a hundred years ago. Teddy Roosevelt said this about our country. He said, the things that will destroy America, our prosperity at any price, Peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living, and the get-rich theory of life. And I think, not prophetic, but almost. That is true. The things that will destroy America are prosperity at any price, peace at any price, safety first instead of duty first, the love of soft living, and the get-rich theory of life. And as we have seen over the last many years, that is slowly destroying America, right? Now, what's the hope for America, by the way? Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Please don't give me a political party. Christ. (laughs) Right? You know, the great awakenings that have happened before is because Christians started living like Christians. I don't know what the Lord's plan for America is, but I do know this. If we are ever to get out of the... the, um, the pit that we are in, it's because people who name the name of Christ live like that, live like Christ wants us to live. And we're going to be looking at supernatural living today. By the way, the reason I wanted to read that quote from Teddy Roosevelt is because the same thing that can destroy a country can also destroy a Christian. Or put it this way, when we start being more concerned about us as individuals than us as a community... We are solely being destroyed as a believer. By the way, when I say destroyed, I don't mean 
that uh, we will lose our salvation. I'm saying we will, be, we will be useless and will not be able to truly honor Christ. When we start to serve ourselves versus serving others, then those are indicators that our lives are not going to be useful to Him. When we count personal freedom more, in per, uh, more important than personal sacrifice and the, for the future, then we know that we are becoming less and less useful. When we no longer care about personal discipline versus self-discipline, because again, going back to that freedom issue. I like how one man said it. He said, the only productive life as well as the only truly satisfying life is a self-disciplined life. And yet that's what our country has run away from. The reason that's so important is because we live in this country. And we buy into the values of this country. And we have to be careful because those are the values, selfishness, individualism, living for the moment, are the things that work against walking with Christ, that supernatural living. No, Christ calls us to a disciplined life. We need to have disciplined of our minds. We need to have discipline of our character. We don't like that word many times, discipline, self-discipline. Simply put, self-discipline is the willingness to subordinate ourselves, our personal desires, our objectives to those that are selfless and divine. In other words, I'm willing to do what you want and live according to the, your plan for me, God. Again, it's it's not attractive. It's not easy to be self-disciplined. That's why we find it so difficult. And again, along with that comes a commitment issue. We lose commitment as we are not self-disciplined, as we start focusing on ourselves. Relationships and everything that has to do with commitment kind of flies out the window. And we, we're not committed in our relationships in our marriages. We're not re- committed in our relationships with our children and even with the people of the church. By the way, when I say we, I say we as a country. I trust that's not how it is you. I, I, I trust that you are a, a disciplined, committed, focused individual. But again, our country has gone in that direction. As one guy said, it is absurd, absurd uh, as it is unbiblical to believe that anyone can live a faithful, fruitful Christian life on mere good intentions and warm feelings. Sometimes we have the warm fuzzies, and we say, well, we just love the Lord. And, and that, those are great, by the way. I love the warm fuzzies. I love when the emotions really kick in. But the reality is we have to have discipline along the way. Because God has given us a number of commandments. God has given us a number of principles. He, is, he has given us specifics, the black and white. He's given us standards. And he tells us to live by those. And to live by those, we need to have discipline. And again, I'm not, I'm not advocating this, that, that mechanical self-discipline alone will lead to godliness. But that is a key element to living the, godly, uh, uh, the, to living the Christian life, to living the supernatural life. I need to know that by the fruit of the Spirit, it comes self-control, self-discipline. And these are things that God expects in my life. And I move towards that with intensity versus just waiting for the feelings. Too many people are, are feeling-based. They're looking for the good. You know, they have great intentions. In fact, if I had, a, uh, if I had a, an altar call, many times they would be down this aisle once a month wanting to do the right thing. And they'll say, I want to do the right thing. But again, um, it seems that the power of God through their lives is not flowing because they keep wanting to do the right thing. That's a good intention, but really not doing the right thing. So we want to do the right thing, not just say we want to do the right thing. 
The 19th century Englishman Robert Chapman wrote, Seeing that so many preach Christ and so few live for Christ, I will aim to live for him. He was a very, very godly man. He was well known back in the turn of the century. His friend Jan Jan Darby said of Chapman, he said this, He lives what he teaches. That's a, a great summary for a life, for a life of a preacher. He lives what he preaches. It was said of the popular 19th century English author William Arnett, His preaching is good, his writing is better, but his living is best of all. I'd love that. Yeah, I mean, he preaches okay, but man, you you watch his life. You can learn a lot. One time a young man asked a preacher, he said, How can you know if you are truly a Christian? I think that's a great question. I think that's a question that we all should ask. Make sure you're in the faith, right? How can you know if your decision for Christ wasn't just an emotional experience? How do we know that? This is how I would respond. The only way to know if we have experienced true salvation, been truly made right before him, again, is looking at our hearts and our lives, right? It's not so much what you say, it's not even the decision you make, it's let's look at our lives. If Christ is our Savior and Lord, the deepest desire of our hearts will be to what? Serve him and please him. That's what our desire. We're going to pattern our life after his life. It is not that our lives will have become perfect, but the direction is moving towards Him. See, we're, we're going to be looking at nine characteristics of, or ten actually, of characteristic of Christ. And the question is, our, is our life moving towards that direction? It's not that the, it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction. Is it, is it moving to become more like Him? The, um, Julian Huxley. Now he actually, disregarded the Bible and the in in God from what I understand, but said this it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian, it just takes all of him. It just takes all of him. So as men and women who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, like Romans twelve talked about, and we've received the mercy of God and we become living sacrifices, verse one, and we have become uh, willing to serve others, verses 3 to 6. Now, actually 3 to 8. Now we look at verses 9 and following, and we have to ask the question, am I truly living the supernatural life? See, as I put my faith in Him, as I am empowered by the Spirit of God who was given to me on the day that I got saved, am I truly allowing the Spirit of God to work through me? Now again, I say the idea of discipline because there's something I have to do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, right? So it's God working in me, but I have to be willing to say, I want to be focused. I want to, I, I, I know what you want in my life, Lord. Now I'm moving in that direction. And it's all about love. Look at verse 9. Let your love be without hypocrisy. That's the nature of love. It's, it's personal, but notice it's genuine. It's Genuine love means it's agape. It's uh, sacrificial. Lord, I, I, I'm, I'm seeing in my life... Uh, moving away from a selfish, it's all about me, to, Lord, it's what about you want and what, what I'm to do for your people. 
So that's what agape love is. Uh, Without hypocrisy, I'm not faking the Christian life. I'm not faking love even. It's truly sacrificial. Is your love for others, is your love for Christ truly sacrificial? That's what agape has to do with. And again, agape love is the love that God has. God is love. We cannot, no person can truly exemplify agape love without God being in that person's life. I think the Bible is very, very clear on that. Agape love is such love that only God can produce in a, in a person's life. But then we move from verses, uh, verse 9 to verses 10 through 13, and here I think he's painting the idea and giving characteristic, giving indicators. Again, remember I said it's easy to say that, you know, we're walking with God and we have the warm fuzzies. Yeah, I just love Jesus. I hope you say that. I love Jesus. But now he's going to give some indicators. You say you love me? You say that your love is without hypocrisy? You say your love is genuine? You say that you truly are walking with me, that you're one of mine? Let me give you some indicators, Paul says. Let me give you some things that you can start looking in your life and say, are these truly there? Are these, are, are these the things that are developing in your life? Again, don't get discouraged to the point of despair if you say, well, I don't see these in my life. I would ask the question then, are you a true believer? Have you truly trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you come to the point in your life where you understood that you were a sinner condemned before God himself, that the only thing you deserved was punishment and wrath and hell, but realize that Jesus Christ came and died for sinners, i.e. you, and you believe that with all your heart and you trusted Christ. You know, that's what we're talking about when we say salvation. Have you trusted Christ? But again, Paul now, I think, is saying, okay, a lot of people say they trust Christ. Boy, that was a good little video, wasn't it? Because it actually, if you were to say how many people think they're believers, it's, I think, one-third, i.e. two billion. But again, as, as I have seen many statistics over the years, so many that think they're believers are not true believers in Jesus Christ. You can ask them questions and it becomes obvious, you know, it's a works-based salvation. So... Don't you love when the scripture gets very practical, like right in your face and says, okay, you say you have love, you say it's without hypocrisy, let's, let's, let's give a little quiz, let's, let's see some indicators of it. First of all, are you devoted in brotherly love? The first one, be kindly affectionate to one another. I.e., this is love in action. These are ten things, love in action. And this love, by the way, when you say love, it has to be towards an object. It has to be towards God, because it says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But if you say you love God, who you can't see, well, how, do, how about the one that you can see, which is your brother or sister in the Lord? So, question, are you devoted in brotherly love? That's an indicator of a person who has truly received Christ, who has supernatural power within themselves. They care about others. And that word, as I said last week, was, it's a family-type love. It's not agape. It's a... It's a kindred-type love. It's phileo. In fact, it's a combination of two different words for love. But the idea is it's a family love. How many of you are uh, parents, either a father or a mother? Man, a lot of... You know, one of the characteristics of a father or mother is they never give up on their children. It doesn't matter how bad the kid is doesn't matter what the kid said and did. It, you're still one of mine, right? Wouldn't you say that's true, honey? 
Would you give up on your kid first or your husband first? Anyway. <laughs> um, now, just think about that. That's what he's getting at there. That's what he's getting at. When I said the word kin, and when I say the word kindred, like like even be kindly affectionate. I mean, you see kin there, and that's why our word is made up of the idea of kin. We're kin. Now, just like you would not give up on your physical son or daughter, the point of this is that you would not give up on the children of God. That you would actually look at each other with that type of tightness, with that type of commitment. That you're devoted to one another in brotherly love. Like a friend loves at all times. Um, a brother is born for adversity. The idea of brother is born for adversity in Proverbs is, you know, sometimes you don't see each other, but when there's a trouble, what do you do? You run back to family. So again, we're devoted to one another. We're supportive of one another like a close-knit family. We're loyal. We're concerned. And you just have to ask yourself, is that being developed in your life? Now again, you may say, well, I guess I never even thought of it that way. Well, again, do you want it to be developed? Because that's what God wants for you. How about number two? You prefer one another in honor. So in other words, prefer in honor means to value. In other words, as I, you know, as I look out, I value you. I show it by, and you show it by how we serve each other, how we pray for each other, how we are, uh, reach out to each other, in whatever way that that happens, and we're all different. But in other words, we're sticking with each other. We, we go through tough times together. We weep with those who weep. We rejoice with those who rejoice. So we prefer, again, family guy time. The next one, do not lag in your diligence. Again, this is supernatural stuff. It's one thing to love your biological son, but it's another thing to have that same type and even a tighter bond among the believers. But if God has drawn us together through the Spirit, it will be there. But the idea of lagging and diligence, again, is don't get lazy and don't get un, um, um, unfocused on your responsibilities to each other. See, like when we lag, it means we become, again, lazy. I, I think he's really pointing to the fact of not just lazy, because I think we're all busy, but many of us are busy with the wrong things. You know, some people will say, well, I, I, you know, I, I'm, the last thing I'm, uh, I'm is lazy. But then you start looking at their life and they're busy with all the wrong priorities. They're running here, there, and everywhere, and they're just getting tired. But the idea of diligence has also the idea of priority. Priority. So it's aligning ourselves with what God wants us to do. Luther, back 600 years ago, said this, Don't be lazy as to what you ought to do. Are you doing what you ought to do? Because you may be a very, very busy person, but from God's perspective, he may say, you know, but you're not doing the things that I'm, I'm telling you to do. You're not concerned about my priorities. And what are his priorities? Well, one of them is getting into the Word of God. I liked what Frank was saying. At the very end of the, the lesson downstairs, we were, you were talking about uh, eating and how eating is compared to like the Word of God, ingesting the Word of God. But the difference between taking in the Word of God and meditating on it day and night, like the psalmist said, and treating it like, a, um, like you're a vacuum cleaner, 
You know, just give me a point. I'm in a, in a rush. Just give me a, give me a concept so I can move on with life without, without uh, feeling guilty. It's two different things. See, one is slowing down and saying, Lord, I need your word even greater than I need physical food. The other one says, you know, Lord, I just want to get through this to get on to the things that really matter in life. So let's, let's not lag in our diligence towards the things that God wants for us. Fervent in spirit. Fervent, a glow, it means, a glow. It has to do with our attitude. You know, passion. Barnhouse wrote, The glow of the spirit is the warmth of the soul touched by the love of God. So it's the warmth of the soul touched because we know that Jesus Christ, God the Father, the Spirit of God, the Trinity loves us. It cannot exist apart from the knowledge that we have been loved, that Christ has given himself for our sins, that we've been redeemed, that the Spirit of God is in our life. It's all wrapped around that. And because of that, we can have a glow, we can have a passion. Passion for our own Christian life, passion for others. Passion. Don't you love passionate people? Think about relationships. Because again, I think this is in the context of relationships. Many of you have dated. Many of you have been married. But, but think about the relationship of dating. She is the best thing that I've ever seen. And then you start dating her. And you're just in love with her. And you someday, you know, offer your hand and her hand and you get married. And, you know, that's just passion is still there. I can't wait to live the rest of my life. It's going to be so different with us than everyone else says it may be. But what happens? You start to know each other after you get married. And then after a few years, even some of the strengths become real irritants of that other person. And you have to make that, that commitment when you get married, and it has to continue that, you know what, Lord, you've brought us together and we will work it out together. And if you do that, the love grows. And if you don't, it, it, the relationship is destroyed, right? Why? Because you're moving closer together. See, there are things that you never even thought to ask when you said, will you marry me? And at the altar. There's things that if I counseled you that I forgot to ask you, hey, what about? But you, as you move together, you start to, uh, like two porcupines at times, moving together, you can prickle each other, right? Now, why do I say all that? Because in any relationship, it's like that, whether it's family, whether it's marriage, whether it's kids, whether it's church. And I think the reason he brings up this idea of a glow, fervent in spirit, passionate, after he's talked about being devoted and preferring is because it's only after a few years that you start getting irritated <laughs> with maybe even other people. I'm not talking about family. I'm talking about the church. Because I've seen it happen many, many times. A person that's so excited about being here gets frustrated and leaves after a few years. And the thing is, you've got to remember, anytime you grow closer to a person, you see they're both their strengths and weaknesses. So are you a glow in the Spirit? Do you have that type of an attitude? Are you enthusiastic still? I don't know how long you've been saved. I've been saved almost, well, 75. What is that, 30-some years? No, has that been? 75. How many years is that? Oh, my. Thank you. I think you can't believe it. 
My question to me after 37 years of walking with the Lord, and there's been ups and downs, and there's been sins and, you know, and all this, but can I still really say that I'm still enthusiastic? Am I passionate about God himself? That, that's the first one. And if I can say, yes, I think I'm passionate about God, I would then say, am I passionate about his program? Look at all the billions that are still not, have not heard. Am I really willing to reach out? How about this? Am I really passionate about his people? Or have they just become irritants? <laughs> you know, an island. I, I just want to be an island. No. And again, I've, I've wanted to preach this series. <clears throat> One of the main reasons is, is to challenge you. Listen, the, how you love God is going to be exhibited by how you love his people. So again, am I passionate for his program, his people, just his person? Again, that's where it starts. I hope we are. I hope you are. I hope you haven't grown weary and exhausted and spiritless, as Galatians 6 talks about, growing weary. Are we truly serving the Lord? Next one. Serving. It's, love is always going to be exhibited by serving. How about the next one, the sixth one? Rejoicing in hope. This then starts to, I think he, he starts bringing up some other aspects. Look at this. Joyful in hope. What's going to stabilize my uh, joy or my uh, excitement, my passion? If I can honestly rejoice in hope. What is hope? Hope is a confident expectation. It's not like we use the word hope. Well, I hope it happens. It's an, a, a confident expectation that it will happen. That's why in Titus chapter 2 it says, looking for the blessed hope. That's talking about the second coming of Christ, that Jesus Christ is coming back. That's why it's a blessed hope. Because he is going to come back. It's not like, man, I wonder if he is going to come back. Boy, I really hope someday he comes back. Now, we know that he's coming back. The only question is what? When? Now, because we know he's coming back, we know he's living, we know that he is the ruling king for Israel and for all mankind, that gives us hope. That hope gives us, well, not only hope, but joy. See, we can rejoice in hope. We're glad. In the Bible, hope always has to do with what God has promised. Again, underline the idea of promise, but that which we have not yet seen or received. We know he's coming back. God has promised he's coming back. But we haven't seen him yet. We haven't been at the reception yet. And hopefully... Now, hopefully, and now this is a hope. This is a hope in the sense of, I'm not sure, but I, I hope that, that uh, we are taken out of here soon. <laughs> but there again, I know that the rapture is going to happen someday. I'm just not sure when. I'm just not sure when. In fact, this hope is so important that in 1 John 3, it says this, Beloved, when he is revealed, that's Christ, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. See, this hope makes us more pure. This hope gives us focus for our Christian life. It forces us to say, listen, I want to walk with him because he is coming back. I want to live for him. This hope in Thessalonians is called the helmet of the hope of salvation. It's like a helmet. Any of you ever play football? One of the things you want to do if you do play football is you want to make sure you have your helmet on. You don't want some linebacker, you know, hitting you from the side and then you have a concussion, right? 
Hell, you know, if I had a helmet, you could go like this. You know, guys would all, you know, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you don't want to do that without a helmet. The idea, though, the hope of our salvation is our helmet. Now, think about that. Because the vitals are, are sacrificed if we forget that we are saved. I mean, we have this confident expectation, not only of the fact that Christ is coming back, but based on his sacrifice on the cross and the truths of Scripture and the promise of God, as we receive him, we have eternal life. Have you ever seen heaven? Have you ever seen heaven? No. But we hope, confident expectation, that we will someday be there. And that's like a helmet of salvation to us. That's like a helmet that I am trusting in him. I am trusting in his sacrifice. So the tribulations and the trials and the hurts and the frustrations and everything else and all the things of the world can be thrown at us, but it's just like having a helmet on because we have the hope of salvation, that confident expectation. That hope supports us when we are downcast. It soothes us in the bitterness and the afflictions of life. It elevates our affections. That's what the hope does. And when I say hope, again, it's not just the return of Christ. It's all the things in Scripture that the Bible, that God promises, that we have a confident expectation of. It makes us so that we fix our expectations on glory, not on the present. It disengages us from the love of this world because we know that this world is crumbling. And yet it gives us a confidence and a conviction to reach out to the world because they are also crumbling. You know, I mean, we're talking people here. We're not just talking a system, world system. So this hope, if I could summarize, it soothes us, it supports us, it disengages us from the world, it elevates our, our affections, it gives us confidence, it convicts us, it encourages us. I mean, it's, so we have rejoicing in hope. That's the supernatural living. Supernatural living says, Lord, I'm just trusting you. And whoever wins the election or whatever happens in our system or whatever is going on in this world, in one sense, is very immaterial because I know whom I have believed in. How about the next one? Now, because we have hope, we can persevere in tribulation. (coughs) In fact, over in Hebrews chapter 12... Verse 2, it says, look this, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, there's that word joy, that was set before him, endured the cross. Now, that word endured is the same word as patient and tribulation. He endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words, he thought of the shame that the whole cross brought to him as just, and once that's insignificant, compared to the glory that would be revealed. Okay? and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So because I am able to have hope, I can rejoice, and because I am rejoicing in hope, I can be patient in tribulation. That patient in tribulation, by the way, is not a resigned fatalism. Oh, what will be, will be. No, it's knowing that God is in control. God is the God of hope, in fact, Romans says. In fact, Romans 5, verse 2 says this, that we exalt or we boast in the hope of God. Okay? We exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, and not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulation. Now, how in the world could you ever boast in your tribulations? 
Only if you have your eyes set on God. That's the only possible way that you could do it. But Romans 5 verse 3 says we actually boast in our tribulations, knowing that what? Tribulations bring about perseverance. In other words, there's a purpose. And the perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. He actually starts the verse, the passage with hope, and he ends with hope. In fact, you could kind of say it this way, that hope is the bookends of the Christian life. When we heard about Jesus and he could forgive your sins, that's the confident expectation. I put my faith in him, receive him, I can be forgiven. And we walk our life in hope, knowing that everything that happens in our life is Father-filtered. And so we can boast even in our tribulations. Why? Because we know it's from God and allowed by God, right? Now, sometimes we get in our own fixes. But whatever is in your life, He's allowed it. And because of that, we can boast even in our tribulation because there's a purpose. It, it produces perseverance. It produces character. He ends in verse 5 of Romans 5, 5, 5. It says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So the Spirit of God keeps putting that, that confident assurance. Yes, keep moving forward. Don't give up. It's that supernatural living. How about the next one? Devoted to prayer. Verse 12, the last part, continuing steadfastly in prayer. It's the same construction as over in Acts chapter 6 where it talks about the apostles said, now you go serve tables, we're going to devote ourselves to prayer. And yet here, Paul calls all of us to do the same. We need to devote ourselves to prayer. We need to continue in it. We need to be unwavering in it. Now notice the, uh, the location of this. He's just talked about a lot of things that we find very difficult. Stay in focus, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. Why? Look at the next thing he says. And continuing steadfast in prayer. Because that's the thing that we have a tendency to falter in. Especially when things are going good. (laughs) We get tired of praying. Our minds wander. We neglect it. And so what does God do? He allows tribulation into our life to produce perseverance, to produce character, to even produce more hope. But the idea is this, the more that the Lord allows in our life, now we're being drawn back, hopefully, to prayer. Many times we run away from God for a while. We might even get frustrated with God. Why, Lord, do you put this in my life? Or why do you put that person in my life? But again, I believe there's a sequence here. We go through tribulation. Why is that? Because we're drawn back to prayer. Dependence on Him. See, it's through our afflictions and trials and adversity and misfortune and disaster that we're drawn back to God. I remember years ago, we, we were always praying for a revival in America. We may just be on the verge of that. But why? Because we finally say, you know what, my Social Security is not going to be there, and the 403 is gone, and the other enemies of this world are, you know, are starting to create this thing called a nuclear bomb, and we could be wiped out. Lord, help us! Up to that point, we might be talking about it, but maybe we're on more praying ground now than we've ever been. That, or maybe more independent than we've ever been, that's bad. Right? It should cre- tribulation in our life should create a dependence in our life not towards other people, but towards God. 
See, we don't pray a lot of times because I think we just don't think that God hears us or that He cares to help us. I mean, we know He's sovereign, but does He really care about us? And I I like to think about Luke chapter 11. Remember, Jesus is teaching His disciples how to pray in in Luke chapter 11. He gives us His... (laughs) I mean, the disciples asked Him, teach us to pray. He told us what we call the, uh, the disciples' prayer. But then He gives a story. In verse 5, and he said, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. I'm hungry. And, and you know the story. The guy is like, you know, I'm tired. I don't want to come to the door. Can you just come back tomorrow? No, I'm, I'm hungry. Okay. For a friend of mine has come to me on his, on his journey and I have nothing to set before him. What's the whole point? Well, he finally gets out of his bed because he keeps... Verse 8, I say to you, though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give. The whole point is be persistent. And then he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock and it shall be opened. And then he ends with this. This is very important because the last part, verse 11, it says, If a son asks asks for bread from any father among you, Will he give him a stone? He goes on, but the idea is this. God wants us persistent. But remember, God is more than t- to us than even a, a friend. He is our Father. He wants to give good. But again, we're not persistent enough. We don't ask. We don't think that he really cares. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I mean, even the Spirit of God is given because we ask for prayer. So again, we need to pray. We need to pray with persistence. How about the next one in Romans? Again, these are just indicators of how we're walking with God. Really, um, these are symptoms of the supernatural life. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Contributing to the needs. The word distributing means uh, koinonia. We get koinos, koinonia, which is a fellowship, partnership. In other words, we look at, again, he's going back to this concept of the saints, not of the world, of the holy ones, of the believers, of the those who are kindred spirit. So we need to be willing to distribute. Now again, you might say distribute what? Money, right? Well, money's part of it. Money is definitely part of it. God gives us more money than we need, not so that we can find more ways to spend it or to indulge ourselves or to spoil our children or to insulate ourselves from needing God's provision. Now, why does God give it? God gives it so that we might be able to bless others. So we forget that sometimes. If he gives you more, don't just think, well, it's, it's for me. <laughs> God wants us to have opportunity to bless others. Second Corinthians says this, Your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack. He gives us extra, and if you have extra, I'm not saying that you can never have a savings account. Don't misunderstand. But I am saying this, God prospers Christians so that they may bless other Christians and other people, not just Christians, but other people. So, but here it's contributing to the needs of the saints. I'm in fellowship. I am in koinonia with you. So I'm willing to give. I'm willing to sacrifice for you. But it also goes beyond just money. I think it goes towards all the other aspects. If you're mourning, I should come along and weep with you. If you need instruction, I would come along and give instruction. If you need encouragement, I'll encourage. 
If you feel love, uh, lonely and abandoned, I would come in comfort, right? <laughs> By the way, if you're in rebellion, I'll come in rebuke. But I, actually, I'm using the word I. It's we. See, I care so much about you. You're, you're like family. You're our family. In fact, you're, you're closer than family, closer than blood, because we'll be together all. And whatever you need, distributing in the needs of the saints. What, what do I have that I can give you? And it's, again, it's not just money, but that may be part of it. And then he ends with a final indicator, and that's practicing hospitality. Giving yourself to hospitality. The, the word uh, uh, hospitality comes from the word phileo again, but now it's phileo, stranger. So he really wraps the, the whole passage with phileo, friendly, but this is a friend with a, of a stranger. And I still believe, though, he's talking about Christians here. It's just that Christians you haven't met. And you say, well, how can I become more hospitable? Again, it's not just that you're making food for them, although that would be part of it. Back in that day and age, they had so many, uh, you know, you couldn't just go to a Motel 8. Is that the one that says, you know, we'll keep the light on for you? Is that 6? Okay, whatever, 6, 8, whatever. <laughs> I think it's not 13. Anyways, anyways, Motel 6, yeah, yeah. You know, they didn't have that. I mean, inns were just filthy, and they had people of ill repute there, and you just didn't want to stay at an inn. So traveling preachers, traveling Christians need to stay at other Christians' home. But that's a great way to show love. That's true love, that you're opening your house, not just for your dearest friend as a Christian, but even a stranger. Again, a stranger who I believe is saved, but the idea is that I'm willing to sacrifice and give even to a stranger who who names the name of Christ. And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, I think you need to have accessibility. I don't know if I would put this in the outline, but you need accessibility. In other words, a willingness to provide the friendship, the acceptance, the fellowship, the refreshment. You're opening, you're sharing your home, you're sharing your home, you're sharing your family. Again, food, time with that person, maybe finances with that person. You share your very lives. The word hospitality means you're sharing your very lives. You're not throwing just a a token at them of uh, love. You're, You're sharing yourself. And the second is not only accessibility, but vulnerability. You bring people in, there's a vulnerability there. They might, take, they might take advantage of your kindness. They might take advantage of your provisions. By the way, there's a few strangers that are coming through. I, I think these are pretty safe ones. Uh, you see in your bulletin, AIA. We need some hospitality for a few days. Now again, this is more like an announcement than anything else, but... You know, but that kind of opens your home to strangers. Um, Timblins, open your home for a meal. But if you really want to play this out, that's even more than that. That's, that's maybe open your home, let them stay there for a week, you know, give them the key to the house. And again, I'm not asking you to be foolish. I mean, again, there's, I think there's uh, things that, but some of us are way too closed. And God says, listen, if you're really part of family, are you willing to share? Are you really willing to to love each other? Because if you love me, you're going to love each other. John's very clear on that, right? I want to close with a very um, a very good illustration. I, I've used it within the last couple of years, but it's 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 about teamwork. It, teamwork. It's about being committed to one another. It was portrayed years ago in a magazine article explaining how a four-year-old boy had wandered from his Kansas 
farmhouse into an adjacent wheat field. And, and there was four pitchers. And this is what the picture, these are what the picture showed. The first picture was just of the vast wheat field. I mean, acre upon acre and hundreds and hundreds of acres. You know how it is out there. You know, just huge. The pit, second picture highlighted the boy's distressed mother sitting inside their home. His parents had been searching for him all day, but he was just too short to be able to be seen above the wheat. Now think about the distress about that person, that parent. Again, think of it in the context that we are the family of God and how many maybe are even distressed today. The third photo depicted the dozens of friends and neighbors who had formed a human chain in the following morning to continue the search throughout the field. That would be pretty impressive. Locking arms, walking through that field, trying to find this boy who had been out there for overnight. The final picture in the series showed the distraught father holding the lifeless boy who had not been found until he had died of exposure. And the caption under the fourth picture read this, Oh God, if only we had joined hands sooner. We need to as the body of Christ, join hands and work together and be committed and do those things that are very, very practical, which is this. We love one another and our love is not hypocritical. Why? Because we are willing to prefer one another. We're willing to honor one another. We're willing to serve one another. We're willing to pray for one another. We're willing to meet each other's needs. That's what the passage is. And if we work together and join arms, God is pleased. But it starts with commitment to Christ and commitment with each other. Are you committed? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? You say you do. Do you have those indicators in your life? Because that's what pleases the Father, that we have those indicators. Let's stand as we sing to him. Father, again, we thank you for these reminders. May we have true love and action. Father, help us to be able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. There are so many blessings that we have. May we be willing to share them with one another, but also our hurts and our frustrations. Lord, may we be able to weep with those who weep. Father, again, we ask that... Um, you would help us to be radically committed to one another. And by that, we would show not only our, that we are saved, but even more important than that, that we would show our love for you by how we love one another. So we ask that you would mature us in this. None of us are perfect, but may we see in our lives that we are moving in that direction. Guide us now. Help us to be about your business and your people. In Jesus' name, amen.